Well, good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Andy. Just want to say welcome this morning. So good to have you here um, as we celebrate the Lord's goodness, as we celebrate all that He has done for us. And we'll take some time now and dig into the Word. And we'll be in James chapter 3. This morning is where we will be. We've been walking through this summer through the book of James, and we're doing the first 12 verses of James chapter 3 this morning and looking at in James kind of the big picture of faith and what faith looks like and how it demonstrates itself in our lives with specific um, actions, with specific types of obedience that James is very concerned that those who have claimed to be followers of Jesus are living lives that match that claim, are living lives that match that proclamation of faith in the way that they talk to each other, the way that they treat one another, the way that they walk through difficult times. That This is James' concern in this book. This is why he's writing this letter. And we're going to continue in that this morning and looking at the evidence of spiritual maturity. What does spiritual maturity look like? What is it marked by? And James tells us in James chapter 3 that one of the markers of spiritual maturity is how we talk. How we speak to each other, how we talk to one another, how we talk about one another, how we bless, how we curse, all of those things that this is a sign of someone who is, who is growing in spiritual maturity. We'll be in James chapter 3 verses 1 through 12. Let me go ahead and read that to us this morning. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by, um, driven by strong winds, uh, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things." How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For if every kind of beast and bird, of reptile, of sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison." With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, hear, or bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What James is wanting to communicate to us this morning in this passage is that Spiritual maturity is evidenced by our words. James is very concerned about evidence of our faith. And the questions I want to ask this morning as we walk through James 3 is, do our words control us or do we control our words? Are we driven along by our words or are we driving our words? Do we use our words to speak life and hope or to tear down and to destroy? Do we use our words consistently to demonstrate a faith that is rooted and growing in God? Or is there an inconsistency in how we speak, whether it's who we're around at a particular time or the mood that we happen to be in or circumstances or our trials or the temptations around us? Does our speech shift based on those things? You see, true faith 
changes everything. And this is what James wants to communicate to us in this book, and we've seen it already. We've seen how true faith changes everything. True faith changes how we view suffering and how we view trials. True faith changes the source of our wisdom and the willingness and the intensity and intentionality with which we ask for that wisdom. True faith changes that. True faith changes the way we view and treat others. True faith changes how we even see faith itself. That faith itself is to be accompanied by faith-filled, God-honoring works. And faith itself, as we'll see this morning, changes the way we talk. You see, James is writing to show us that ultimately, faith demonstrates and acts on trust. Faith is driven by trust. We believe in something wholeheartedly. We trust in something with all that we are. And so we give ourselves over to that thing or to that person. You see, true, true faith trusts God and trusts his goodness so that I can rejoice in my trials. True faith doesn't just simply walk through trials, doesn't just simply get through trials, doesn't just simply um, wait for them. True faith rejoices in trials because we trust that God is good and he knows what he's doing. True faith trusts that God's word is sufficient so that when I read it, I can do it, and it will change me, and it will honor him, and that those around me can be changed true. So I trust God's word. I place my faith in God's word, and so I act on God's word. True faith trusts that God's word is sufficient. True faith um, shows us that God will provide so that I can serve others freely. The widows and the orphans and the needy and the poor who are in my life, that God brings into my life, I can trust that God will provide for me even if I give all of who I am to those who are less fortunate. True faith trusts that God will show mercy to me and so that I can then show mercy freely to others regardless of their status in life regardless of the kind of money that they have, the kind of power that they have, that I can demonstrate mercy to them because I trust that God has demonstrated mercy to me. And today, we can trust that God can do what James calls the impossible, to tame our tongues. James says very clearly, no human being can tame the tongue. It is impossible in our own strength and our own abilities to tame our words. And so I have to trust that there's someone who can do that for me. That there's something out there that can help me in my words to say words that are honoring to God, honoring to others, and that are consistent with my faith. And so I have to believe that. I have to place my faith in the trueness of who God is and the power of God to change my words. Because as I read through James chapter 3 at the beginning, it's not super encouraging to us, is it? James does not mince words in these first 12 verses of James, of, of this chapter in chapter 3. He makes it very, very abundantly clear the dangers that lie with our speech. The dangers that lie with the way that we talk to ourselves, the way that we talk to others, the way that we talk to God, the way that we talk about God. There is a danger that lies there. You see, James' aim in this section in the whole book is to see followers of Jesus growing in their faith, therefore growing in maturity. That followers of Jesus will continue to work out their faith in fear and trembling, resting in God alone. That growing faith leads to growing mature, maturity. 
So as I'm growing in my trust for the Lord, as I'm growing in my trust for who he is, it will demonstrate itself in my actions and how I'm being changed by that God, how I'm even beginning to reflect that God in my actions, in my trust, in my words. And so this morning, I'm going to share with you five things from James chapter 3 um, about what it means for us to, to, to grow in spiritual maturity. Number one, let's look at, we need to recognize the difficulty in taming the tongue. James, from the very beginning, wants us to see very clearly this is not something to be passed aside. In the New Testament, this is the longest section that is dedicated only to the tongue. These 12 verses is the longest section in all of the New Testament that deals directly with how we talk to each other. So James sees this as very, very important, as central to our faith, as central to us growing in maturity. And so therefore, he wants us to recognize the difficulty there is in taming the tongue. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 together. It says this, Now many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now at the outset, it seems strange that James starts chapter 3 with what feels like a really weird transition between faith and works and faith that is living and faith that is dead. And then he goes immediately into not many of you should be teachers. And then he goes on to talking about how we talk to one another. But I think it's important that he starts here at this particular place because he's reminding us of the seriousness of our words. He's reminding us of the seriousness of spiritual maturity and faith, that there are are only a few who ought to be teaching because of the greater judgment that comes with those words. I have to pray every time I get up here to be able to preach a sermon to you that it's, I need to come up here with a lot of fear and trembling in the things that I'm saying because I know I will be held in a greater account for my words as I'm teaching these things to you. There's a reality to that, so I must be careful with my words, careful about what I'm saying about God's word. When I say that God says a thing, I need to be very careful to make sure God is actually saying that thing. And so we see that James opens up, James as a teacher himself, says we need to be careful about those who are placing in roles of teaching because they will be judged with greater, um, greater strictness. Why? Verse 2 tells us. Because all of us stumble. Every single one of us stumble. We stumble in every single way. And so there's, there's a warning that comes at the beginning of this chapter. There's a warning that James is saying that the reason that many of us should not be teachers is because that most of us, all of us, myself included, need to continue to work on the maturity level in the way that we talk and to be careful in how we're talking to one another. Let's look at chapter 3. And just We already read through it, but I just want to kind of highlight some things in this beginning, these few 12 verses here about what James says about the tongue. The difficulty in taming the tongue. He says there in verse 2 that all of us stumble. He goes on to say that our words, our tongue boasts. He says that in our tongue, in our mouth, is a world of unrighteousness. He says that in our mouth is staining the whole body, that our tongue setting everything on fire, a fire from hell. Says that our tongue is a restless evil. Says that our mouth is full of deadly poisoning, that it curses those who are made in the likeness of God. James is not pulling any punches here. And I don't think James for a second is using hyperbole, where he's just kind of exaggerating to make a point. I don't think James is stressing it enough on some places. I don't think we take this seriously enough. And I think that's why James is using this kind of language. 
He wants to wake us up. He wants us to see that the way that we talk matters. It's not, in, it's not insignificant. It matters. But I think for many of us, we don't actually think that our words matter as much as they do. For many of us, we are just flippant with our words. We justify what we say. We excuse what we say. We lessen the weight of what we say. We don't carry the weight of our words. And what James is trying to tell us here is that there is weight to everything that we say. Every word that comes out of our mouth, every word that doesn't come out of our mouth but swirls around in our head, every word that we think nobody else hears matters. And if we do not tame it, if we allow it to be what it wants to be, it will destroy and it will control. James is telling us here the difficulty of taming the tongue. When I was young, this is going to be hard for you to imagine, but when I was young, I had hair. So imagine for a second me with hair. I know it's hard, but I did. For a time in my life, there was a lot of hair up there, and then it all went away. But one of the things about my hair growing up that I inherited from my dad, who also now has a haircut like mine, is a cowlick. When I was growing up, if you see pictures of me as a kid, I had a huge cowlick on the front of my head. And there was nothing, no product, no magic wish, no curse from a witch in a mountain, no prayer to God, whatever, that would get that thing to stay down. There was nothing that would get that thing to stay down. And I remember often, almost every time that I went to the barber to get my hair cut, a deep sigh of, "Ah, here's that kid again, that I don't know how to cut this thing on top of his head that just won't go down. And so I had a cowlick growing up, and it was impossible to tame. Nothing could tame that, that cowlick. You know what tamed that cowlick? It falling out. That's what tamed that cowlick. Nothing else would do that. It is gone now, and that's the only thing that tamed that cowlick. Some supernatural act had to tame that cowlick. And what James is trying to communicate to us is that all of us have this uncontrollable cowlick That apart from God, apart from a supernatural act, apart from something radically changing, nothing will be able to tame it. And we need to take this seriously. What James is opening us up with is the seriousness of our words. James is warning us that our words matter because our words carry judgment with them. Every single one of our words carries judgment with them. And the more words you speak, the more judgment that carries with that. The more authority that comes with your words, the more judgment that comes with that. So that's why we take our words seriously. And James is trying to tie spiritual maturity to the ability to control one's speech. And therefore saying, if we contain this one small part of our body, then we contain the rest of it. If we contain this untamable thing, then the rest of us will fall into place. And so James is drawing our attention to this central part to say, I am deeply concerned about your maturity, but your maturity is not going to happen until this one part is tamed. And as your pastor, as elders of this church, we are deeply concerned about your maturity. We're deeply concerned about you growing in your faith in Jesus and looking more and more like Jesus all of the time. And we know, including ourselves as elders, that without taming our tongues— Without sanctifying our words, that maturity is going to be stunted at best and maybe dead altogether. James wants us to realize and recognize the seriousness, the untamability of our tongue. Secondly, 
We see that James wants to redirect the power of the tongue. He wants us to see that the tongue is powerful and that it it can destroy, it can control, that that it has great evil in it. But he's saying that it can be controlled. There's a a way to control this. James says in verses 3 to 5, he says, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds— They are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. We saw at the end of of verse 2, it says he is perfect. He is also able to to bridle his whole body. In other words, that someone who is mature in the faith is able to bridle, to control their whole body because they have worked with the power of God to control their tongue. And so James gives us these illustrations as if the verses weren't enough. He kind of breaks down for us, this is what this looks like. And you know this. He gives them very clear examples from real life. A horse and a ship. This giant animal. Horses are amazing and they're beautiful, but they're scary, aren't they? Let's just be honest. If you walk up to a horse, it is definitely intimidating. This giant beast of an animal that weighs hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds, that can stomp on you and kick, is a scary, scary animal. And yet James is telling us here that just a tiny piece of metal in that horse's mouth, and that giant beast will go anywhere you direct it to go. And he goes this another, and he gives us another example of a giant ship. He sees the giant ship, and he reminds us in this, the giant ship is carried by the winds. Wherever that wind wants to go, it's going to go. This giant ship, but there's a small piece in that ship, the rudder, that if a pilot does the job well, can direct that entire ship to go wherever he wants it to go. He wants us to show us that this small part in us can do great, great things. And without controlling that small part, the rest of it is out of control. When I was growing up, my uncle had horses, Um, and I was a little bit nervous about the horses, but I rode these horses. And on one hand, on one particular instance, um, I was saved by the grace of God by a horse that decided to go on its knees and roll over on top of me and do a little roll. I was a little kid, maybe eight years old or whatever it was, and the reason that horse did that is because I directed unwillingly or unknowingly directed that horse to do that by the way that I was controlling the bridle. That when you're controlling the bridle of a horse, there's a way to do that subtly where the horse goes left and right and does where he wants to go. But I decided in my eight-year-old enthusiasm to yank as hard as I can onto that bridle. And that horse said, nah, I'm not doing that. And he went to his right and went down to the ground, rolled over on top of me and got up and continued to walk. And in that instance, again, I'm reminded as I think about that now, just that giant beast, that just that one motion of mine instructed this animal to do this thing. And had I controlled it better, had I been more aware of what I was doing and how I was doing those things, that horse would not have done this. And see what we're seeing in this passage of Scripture, James is saying the same thing. That this thing in our mouth, this tongue, and the way that we use it controls so much. It controls how we think often. It controls our attitudes. It controls our relationships. It controls our obedience It controls what we do with our days. It controls how we honor God. It controls all of those things. We see in Psalm 39.1, the same thing coming up. Psalm 39.1 says, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. 
so long as the wicked are in my presence. The psalmist in Psalm 39 knew that for me to keep quiet, for me in this moment to guard my mouth, a muzzle is necessary. Because of the danger that lies in my mouth, because of the intentions of my heart that want to come out at times, because the temptation to sin, a muzzle is required for this. Ecclesiastes 5 and verse 6 says, Let not your mouth lead you into sin. James is telling us the same thing, that our mouth so often leads us into sins. And it's, James is telling us if you can control this one part, you can then rule over your actions. And it seems, it seems a little strange. It seems a little over the top, doesn't it? Let's be honest with you. To say that James says, if you can control your words, the rest of you can be controlled. But it doesn't seem over the top if we take James seriously of the danger of our words. Of the, of the temptation that lies in our hearts to cut down and to destroy. That if you can control this one part, you can control your actions. James says there at the end of verse, um, there at the, um, the end of verse 4, with the small rudder that the pilot can direct this, this giant ship even among the strong winds. So my question to you this morning as we look in this passage is, who is piloting your words? Who's driving the ship? Who's pulling on the horse's bridle? Is it you? Are you controlling your speech? Are you the one who is in charge? Are you the pilot? Are you the one controlling the bridle? Or are you actively releasing control? Are you actively denying yourself and allowing the Holy Spirit to direct your words? Because James says very clearly here, you can't tame your words. You can't. So what he's also saying is, stop trying to tame your words. In your own strength, in your own ability, with your own wisdom, stop. Because it will never, ever work. You must release control. You must recognize in and of myself, my words are out of control. I say hurtful things. I say unkind things. I say untrue things in and of myself. I need God to take control of my mouth. And if this one part of my body can be controlled by the power of God, then I can also say when I'm tempted in other ways with my body, with my life, with my mind, I can say, if God, you tame this one part— you can do the rest. If you can cause me to say words that bring life and hope, if you can cause me to, to get rid of complaining or things in my life, I can trust you to change the rest of me as well. Such a small part can have such a huge impact. James is telling us here, control the tongue, control the body. Control the part, control the whole. This is important for us to see. This is important for us to recognize and the question I have to ask this morning is, why then do we so easily ignore this small part? If it has such a huge impact, if it dictates the rest of our life, if it dictates the rest of our body, if it, if it dictates our spiritual maturity, why do we so often ignore it? Why do we act like it's no big deal? Why are we so flippant with our words? Why does what our, we think come directly out of our mouth at times? Why does what we say come way before what we think? Why are we actively hurting others with our words? Why are we not giving better attention to this? Why do we act like this sin of our words is no big deal? I know I'm guilty of that. I know in my life I am not nearly as careful with my words as God is calling me to be. I'm not nearly as careful in my thoughts and thinking about what I'm saying as I'm called to be. So why then? Why then do I just ignore this part of this? What God is calling me to, knowing it's like this, is I need to train and bring my words into submission. 
I need to discipline myself and say, God, you must shape my words. You must shape the things that I'm saying. They must be from you and not from me. Just a small part can control the whole body. And yet we focus and we miss so many times. Growing up, um, sitting in church, we had good old pews, wooden pews in a small Baptist church in Northwest Ohio. And I would often sit in front of my dad in church. They would, my mom and dad would sit behind me. I would sit in front of them. And there's a thing that my dad could do that can control my entire behavior, that entire service. You know what that thing was? One tap on the back of my head. Boop. That's all it would take. A little mm, on my head. And up I went, focused I went, sang the songs, listened to the sermon, all because that one little part, my dad behind me, boop, up I went. I think the same thing is true with our tongue and the same things that we talk about, that that little part literally controlled my whole body. <laughs> there was a visceral reaction to me of, oh, man, I, gotta, I forgot I was in church and I need to focus. And so that's a good weapon. Dads, have your kids sit in front of you. It's a good little boop. It'll, it'll draw their attention for that. I see your kids looking at your dads right now where they're seated. Um, but it's a really important thing. And I think us recognizing that as well as that little part can control all of it. And if we recognize that, if we see that, if we take that seriously in our lives, we can see maturity begin to happen. Some of us are stunted in our growth in Jesus because we're not controlling our words. We may go to all the Bible studies. We may sing all the songs really loud. We know all the theology stuff. We read all kinds of great books. We're doing all of those things, but we are, our words are out of control. And we're stunted in our growth. We're stunted in our maturity. And James wants to say and draw our attention to this reality. The reason you're stunted is in your maturity is because you have not yet given control of this one small part. And once that is given over control to the Lord, you will see growth happen greatly. So we see we need to redirect the power of the tongue. Thirdly, we need to resist the destructive nature of the tongue. Not only does this small part control a bigger part of this, this small part has immense potential for disaster. We see in verses 6 through 8, James goes on to say, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a small fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Again, James is not mincing words. He's not saying, hey guys, be careful. It can lead you into some danger at times. James is warning of death and destruction. James is warning of this, this small thing that can cause such immense um, destruction in our lives. Look again at the words that he says. He says, a tongue is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the entire course of hell, set on fire by hell. No human being can tame it. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. And James is saying this not just about a few, but saying about all of us. All of us, apart from a supernatural act of God, this is the way that we speak. That we look for ways to tear down. We look for ways to destroy. We look for ways to be able to destroy people and lives around us apart from the work of God. And again, James gives us this amazingly clear kind of no-duh illustration. 
the, the, the potential that a small spark has to set a whole forest ablaze. Right? We've seen this on the news recently. We've seen this over the last several years with the, the, the forest fires that are out west and the ways that just a whole state and whole sides of our country are being destroyed because somebody wanted to throw off fireworks to start say that he was having a girl instead of a boy. Some tiny little thing or left this little spark or started their barbecue in the wrong way or whatever tiny thing. We see how very quickly that fire gets out of control and destroys everything around us until it is distinguished, distinguished, until it is controlled, until it is brought under the submission of those around it. We see in Proverbs chapter 26, verses 18 through 19, Solomon says this, he says, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. Solomon gets it here in the Proverbs. What words does he use for our words? Firebrands, arrows, death for the words that we bring to us. See in Proverbs chapter 10, verses 19 to 21, it says, words, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of sense. One who wrote this Proverbs, again, recognizes the death and destruction that comes with our words. We must be careful with that. And again, we know the dangers of fire. We keep it in check. We know how deadly it is when it's, when it's unchecked and unattended. We, we know this. We teach this. We, we know the power of fire. And James connects this with our words. And how diligent we are often with fire, with physical, literal fire. How diligent we are to make sure it does not get out of control, that we are taking care of it. But with our tongue, James says it is exactly the same. And how often are we not diligent with our words? Do we forget about the destructive power of our words? We just allow them to go and to do whatever it is that they're going to do. We must keep them attended. James is telling us how much more impact our words can have. He uses this analogy of the fire to show us our words can be more deadly than that. How much more destructive they can be. How much more deadly they can be. And yet, we're so flippant with our words, aren't we? Again, I am too. I'm not trying to come up here and act like I'm any better at all with this. I am, I am in the same boat with you. The same boat that is being driven by my words so often. But we're so flippant with our words. It's so easy for us to cut down and to gossip and complain and criticize and curse and tell coarse jokes and lie. And we, we don't even bat an eye. It's just a thing that we do. It just goes out into the ethos. It just goes into the air, and we don't see the consequences of it, so it doesn't really matter. Or we type the words on the internet, and we don't see the consequences of it, and it doesn't really matter. I can say whatever I want to say. I can act however I want to act. My words don't matter. James is telling us the polar opposite of this. The depth of our words. The judgment that is carried with all of our words. The destruction that can come with our, with our words. Not only are we passively destroying things, not only are we passively in the sense that I'm acting in such a way and I don't really think twice about it, but there are times in our lives too where we are actively using our words to destroy. We're actively cutting down. There's nobody in the world that can hurt my wife better than me. There's nobody in the world that can say a thing to my wife that will immediately cut her down. And I've done it. 
And she's done it to me, and you've all done it to each other. And there are times in our lives where we're actively cutting each other down. We're actively tearing each other down. Again, the comments, the things that we say on the internet and those posts that we post and the responses that we have, there are times when we are actively trying to destroy a person. Because why? I can click send and walk away and go back to my life. But James is telling us here that those words matter and that those words can destroy and that those words need to be brought in, and those words need to be controlled, that there is, there is danger that comes with our words. And I know this isn't this kind of uplifting, encouraging kind of message, but, but James is kind of warning us. He's giving us this really kind of sober message with our words that I think this is one of those, we've just read through a book called Respectable Sins. And this is one of those respectable sins. This is one of those things that I think as Christians, we kind of set to the side as not as bad as the other things. As long as I'm not killing someone as long as I'm not physically harming someone, as long as I'm not doing some big giant gross sin, my word's not that big a deal. I probably could do better with how I talk, but it's not. James is saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you want to walk in faith, if you want to grow in your faith, if you want a faith that resembles a true saving faith, watch your words. Watch how you speak. Not only are we to watch and control our words, to, to redirect the power of the words, to resist the destructive nature of the words. Number four, we're to resolve to be consistent with our words. Resolve to be consistent with our words. James goes on in verses 9 through 12 and says, With it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James gives one preposterous, crazy example after another. Right? He gives us these examples of saying, listen, this can't be the case. Can a spring give both fresh water and salt water. That's ridiculous, James. Of course not. That could never, ever happen. That is impossible for that to happen. Can a fig tree grow olives? Can a grapevine produce figs? No, James, that's ridiculous. Those things could never, ever happen. Could a salt pond yield fresh water from it? No, James, that's ridiculous. That could never, ever happen. Can we bless God with one side of our mouth and curse God with the other? No, James, that's ridiculous. It cannot happen. And so he's giving us this example to kind of show in us that's the silliest thing I've ever heard of. There is no way that that can ever happen. And I think James turns to us and says, you are the man. It is coming out of both sides of your mouth. It is coming out of both sides of my mouth. We will sing these songs this morning and raise our hands in joy and blessing of God. And we will curse the driver on the way home that cuts us off without thinking twice. Without even recognizing it, without even seeing it, James is trying to draw a light to that and saying this ought not to be. Why? Because true saving faith changes us. That's why. Not in an instant, not overnight, but true saving faith is changing us so that we become more and more like Jesus. We're actively more and more like him. And so on your drive home today, Give pause. Even if today your step forward is, I normally curse immediately, but I waited five seconds this time to curse. That's a step in the right direction. 
you're not there yet, keep moving forward, trust in the grace of God, but recognize in us the intentionality that comes with that, the mindfulness, the thoughtfulness that comes with that. That maybe there's a recognition today that when that comes out of your mouth, when you're tempted to to say something about your spouse or your kids or whoever it is, that the the recognition today is maybe you never recognized it before. But today it's, ooh, I probably shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry for saying that. I want to do better next time. This is growing in faith. This is growing in maturity. And when you can say, look back and say, I can see real change in the how and the ways that I have been speaking. I have seen real godly change in how I'm using my words. And if I can do that, then whatever else is needed for my sanctification, God can also do that as well. If I can control this part, if I can control that, the, the destruction that goes on there, I can control this as well. You see, what James is saying in these few verses here at the end of, of, of this section, is he's saying that it should ring in us uncomfortable and it should sound awful for us. That when we have this blessing and a curse, there should be a, a response to that as, ugh, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't sound good. Katie and I were taking a walk this week and there was what appeared to be the worst band in the history of the world playing at the park. All of them, they were all playing steel drums too. So imagine 20 steel drums. One's enough, but 20 is a lot. And we're walking through the park and all of these steel drummers were drumming whatever they wanted to, however they wanted to, all simultaneously. And it sounded terrible. It was just awful. And so we told, I told Katie, I was like, this is awful. There was nobody there. They were clearly doing a concert. I was like, can see why nobody has shown up to this concert. They're awful. They were practicing. They were warming up. We heard about an hour later, they're coming together. It was still 20 steel drums, but it sounded better than it did before. But as we walked through that, and we heard all of those 20 banging on their drums in different rhythms, in different places, at different times, all of those sounds coming together was harmful to my ears. It made me cringe and say, that's terrible. Let's walk faster to get away from this sound. I think the same could be true with James, is that when curse, when an uncontrolled word, when those things come out of our mouths, that those who are growing in maturity in their faith should say, that didn't feel right. There's something about that that didn't sit well. And that's what James is wanting us to bring out. That's what the, the point of all of this is. Because we need to control our words. We need to use our words for bringing life and not destruction. There should be a consistency with our words. How we treat and how we talk now during this time when we're quote-unquote on our best behavior should carry over when no one else is around. Should carry over in that gut reaction, that knee-jerk reaction, those words that come out without even thinking. Those who are growing in maturity, those words become more and more like Jesus' gut reaction words than our own gut reaction words. You see, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 37, Jesus tells us the same thing as he's talking to the Pharisees there. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit uh, good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for, what does it say? 
for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What Jesus is saying here is by your fruit you will be justified, and by your lack thereof you will be condemned. And James is saying those who have true faith have fruit. Those who have false dead faith do not have fruit. And one of the fruits that is evident is the way that we talk to each other, the way that we speak to one another. That is one of the fruits, and we will be justified because the way we speak demonstrates our faith. The way we respond, the way we treat one another, the way that we talk to one another demonstrates our faith, plays out our faith. And this is what James is telling us. That we should be blessing the Lord with every part of our mouth. Not just the corner, not just the bit, not just at this time, but at all times and every part, we are to be praising the Lord. We are to be worshiping Him. As I read through James chapter 4, my response kind of, doesn't last very long, but my response kind of to James chapter 4, as I'm reading through this in the seriousness, or James chapter 3, in the seriousness of this is, I should probably never ever talk again. That that seems to be the only logical way I'm ever going to get over this is to never, ever, ever say a word again. James is not saying that. James is not saying that a vow of silence is the answer to this. James is saying faith that releases control to God is the answer to this. It's not that I don't speak. We are commanded to speak throughout the scriptures, aren't we? to praise God, to extol, to encourage, to proclaim the gospel. We are commanded to speak in lots and lots of ways throughout the the scriptures. But we are speaking in a way that has been sanctified, that is being uh, changed by the Holy Spirit. We are to speak words of life, not words that tear down. We are to speak words that, that bring up and encourage, not words that destroy and curse. So as we leave this morning, as we think about this practically, how this works out in our life, I just think we need to give pause. What does James tell us earlier? We already read this. We are to be what? Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And then he expounds all that in this passage of Scripture, what that means for us, why it's so important for us to be quiet first and then speak, because we need to control what's coming out of us. We need to control the words that are coming out of us. We need to control our hearts. Or I should say, we need someone to control it for us, because I can't do it on my own. I can't do this on my own. As we move into the last part of this, number five this morning, the music team can come forward. We're going to take the Lord's Supper here in just a little bit, but I want to kind of wrap up my sermon and bring us together to the Lord's Supper as well. How do we respond to this? Well, number five is we rest in the power of the gospel. That's how we respond to this. If James gives us this, you're never going to be able to do this on your own kind of speech— That's exactly what he's doing. I should never be able to tame this on your own kind of speech. Our response needs to be, then how do we do it? How do I tame this? How do I control this? How do I bring life instead of destruction? How do I, when it says in verse 2 there, we all stumble in many ways. Where is the hope in any of this? Well, the good news is that Jesus' good news starts first with recognizing the depth of our neediness. 
The depth of our brokenness, the depth of our polluted self. It starts with, it starts with us looking at James 3 and agreeing with everything he says. And saying, yes, my words are like that too. Yes, I stumble in many ways. Yes, I have destroyed people and things and relationships with my words. Yes, that is me. Yes, yes, yes. I tick every single box you are saying here. Yes, that is me. I need hope. I need help apart from this. What we see and what we recognize in us that Matthew 15 tells us that what out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles a person for out of the heart comes evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. And our response is to agree with Jesus. Yes, you are describing my heart perfectly. Those are all things that are inside my heart. And I need something to change my heart. I need something to give me hope that's not in myself. And the only solution to that is not a fixed heart, but a new heart. It's not a heart that I'm working on and trying to correct myself. What I need is a new heart. What I need is to be raised from the dead and brought to new life again. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus tells us that Jesus has done this for us. This is what he's saying. But what we will do when we receive this grace, he, he gives us and places our faith in him. The old self goes away. We're made into a new creation. So I can read James chapter 3 with hopefulness because Jesus has lived and died and been raised from the dead. Not with despair, not with hopelessness, not with crushing shame and guilt, but with hope because I have been made into a new creation. James tells us that, James 1 and verse 18, the beginning of this uh, book, James says this, of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So God is giving us new life. And so the hope that we have is if you're struggling with your words and you are, don't walk away here, anyone thinking to yourself, well, that was nice for my husband. I hope he heard all of that, and my teenager should really apply everything that was said to them. No, your first step needs to be to go to the bathroom out of here and go look in the mirror. That's your first direction. So I'm expecting a long line at the mirror um, before we leave this place today. But as we look at this passage of Scripture, we need to be convicted of this and say, there's no hope apart from Jesus. There's no hope to, to tame the untamable unless Jesus tames it for me. He must take the bridle. He must take the rudder. He must take what is evil in me and give me what is whole. I have been made a new creation. And the hope for those who are struggling with this and are feeling convicted by this, that those who have trusted in Christ, this does not define you. What defines you is that you are a new creation in Christ who is, has the ability to be changed, to change your words to be able to bring words that are hopeful and joyful and not complaining and not criticizing, but can change all of that because you are a new creation. That's the joy and the hope that we have. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper on a regular basis is because we desperately need to be reminded of how, how Jesus has rescued us. Those who are taking the Lord's Supper can come and get ready for that now as well. We're reminded this morning as we take the Lord's Supper, as we read James chapter 3, I hope in us there's a conviction on some level to say, I need to be more mindful of my words. And we take the bread and we drink the juice as a reminder to us that it is Jesus who does that for us. You know who spoke perfectly every word out of his mouth? Jesus. Everything that came from his heart were words of blessing and joy and life. And that same Jesus is in us, that we are united with him. And so his words can be our words. 
through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we drink the, or we eat the bread and we drink the juice as a reminder to us of what Jesus has done for us. If this morning you have given your life to Jesus, you have placed your faith in him. You have said, I trust in nothing else but Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. We encourage you to take this Lord's Supper. Be reminded of the truth of the gospel. This is why we say every single time, this is not for perfect people. This is not for those who have everything together. This is for those right now in this moment who recognize I have a problem with my words and it is only the, the broken body and shed blood of Jesus that's going to, that's going to rescue me. Take, eat, drink, be reminded, be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what God has called you to do. If you've not yet given your life to Jesus, then we ask that you don't take the Lord's Supper. It's not for you yet. We hope that you will pray. We hope that you will trust. We hope that you will place your trust in Jesus ultimately. But right now, if that's not you, please let it pass by. If there is something in your life, Paul tells us that we ought to examine our hearts as well, and we should not take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. What he means by that is if God has revealed a particular sin in your life, and you know that sin is there, and you're saying, I, want, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to change it. I like it. It's a good part of my life. I don't want to do anything about it. If you are living in that kind of rebellion this morning, again, this is not for you. But if you're recognizing your sin, if you're recognizing your need, and you know I need to do something about it, and Jesus can do it, please take as a reminder of that. If you have children this morning, we want them to partake in this as well. If they are followers of Jesus, that their lives are, are, are showing that in repentance and obedience, please, as parents, take, uh, take the lead in that and let them to see that with them. If your children this morning don't know Jesus yet, take the opportunity as the bread and juice are being passed out. Explain to them, this is what this is. This is why this is important. This is why we're longing for you to know Jesus in this particular way as well. As we, as we prepare ourselves, as those who are passing out, we'll pass those out. Let's sing together. Please stand with me as we sing for the Lord's Supper.